Today on Happy, Sad, Confused, director Terry Gilliam finally delivers The Man Who Killed Don Quixote. Hey guys, I'm Josh Horowitz. Welcome to another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused. Welcome back to my podcast and today's guest, a uh, returning champion. Five years later, Terry Gilliam has re-entered the Happy, Sad, Confused Vortex. Uh, I can't believe it's been five years. Crazy, but um, thrilled to have the great visionary filmmaker yes visionary we i feel like i see that in every trailer for every director right now but i'm going to i'm going to give terry that one he do, he deserves the the visionary moniker um i've said this before when he was on the show years ago um terry gilliam was a big part of my kind of awakening as a film fan growing up one of my first memories of going to see a movie in a theater was seeing time bandits which kind of blew my brain out the backside of my head. Um, and, uh, and then ever since then, um, so many of his works have uh, meant a lot to me, whether it's uh, The Fisher King, Baron Munchausen, 12 Monkeys, um, so many inf- influential pieces of work, and uh, Brazil, my God, Brazil. Uh, and this one, The Man Who Killed Don Quixote, is a, is a fascinating project for a number of reasons. Uh, first of all, it should be said that the finished product is a, is, a, is a quality piece of work. And I know Terry's had his ups and downs in recent years. Some of his films maybe haven't been to everybody's liking. I think Man Who Killed Don Quixote is one of his better ones in recent years. Uh, this one, of course, stars Adam Driver and Jonathan Price, and it is going to begin... It, it kind of had an unusual kind of um, release strategy. It had like a one-night-only Fathom event thing on April 10th. But thankfully, on Friday, April 19th, it's going to be out in a bunch of markets around the country, and it's also going to be available on VOD. So you'll have ample opportunity to check out The Man Who Killed Don Quixote. And, and, that, and, and for those that have followed Terry Gilliam's career, you know how, how exciting that is, because this film just didn't want to be made. <laughs> it was it had so many false starts. Every kind of calamity hit this film over decades. This has been decades in the making. Uh there's a great documentary actually about the the ill-fated uh making of an earlier incarnation of this around 2000 called Lost in La Mancha. That's the name of the doc. You can watch it online and it's free and you, I re- highly recommend that you check it out. Um Lost in La Mancha chronicles a, a film that was was to star Johnny Depp and uh, an actor by the name of Jean Rochefort, who has sadly is in the years since passed away. Um, I mean, in fact, two different actors who were supposed to play Don Quixote have passed away in the last couple decades since this film was uh, in the uh, in the brain of Terry. But it finally it finally happened after a lot of false starts. Terry got it across the finish line, and uh, and major props to him for accomplishing that. Um, he he is such a delight to talk to. This guy doesn't give a crap. He will say whatever is on his mind about the current state of of filmmaking and superhero movies. I will say, I expected him to sh- crap. I was going to say shit. I just said it anyway. It doesn't really matter. To shit on every superhero movie known to man because he has before. He actually name-checked a recent one that he really dug, and it kind of shocked me. So stay tuned for that. Um, But a lot of great stories from Terry in this uh, casting what-ifs of his past work, his flirtation with making a Watchmen movie, which I will always wonder what that would have been like. Oh, my God, a Terry Gilliam Watchmen movie? Could you imagine? Uh, All the way up to the production and completion of The Man Who Killed Don Quixote. So uh, this is a conversation I was very excited to have, and I hope you guys enjoy it as much as I did. Um, Elsewhere, 
elsewhere in the Josh Horowitz universe. Uh, what else to say? Well, we recently debuted a new After Hours that I'm very proud of. Two new After Hours, actually. Um, if you haven't checked out, we did one with David Harbour. On the we released it on the eve of the release of Hellboy. That's on uh, as all After Hours are on Comedy Central's uh, Facebook page, or you can go to Comedy Central's YouTube page. There's an After Hours playlist. You can watch all our crazy bits of madness there. The David Harbor one was a delight to film. He is the best. Just delicious. You'll love it. And then we did a Game of Thrones-themed episode with the one and only Paul Shear. That was fantastic, and I think I've gotten a lot of good feedback, feedback on that one because it, I think it touches a nerve in terms of what a lot of people were feeling going into the season of Game of Thrones. So go check those out. In addition, uh, I just got back from Chicago where it was Star Wars Celebration, which if you don't know is basically Comic-Con that is just all Star Wars all the time. Uh, it's my second time covering Star Wars Celebration. It is a fantastic event. There's so much positivity in the in the air. Um, you know, I live and breathe Star Wars ever since I was a kid. I've just, uh, you know, been obsessed with it. So to be able to be at these panels and then to interview the cast of the new films, it's, it's, it's really one of the highlights for me in my job. Um, we've begun rolling out those interviews. I interviewed all of the folks, um, everyone from Daisy Ridley and John Boyega and J.J. Abrams and Oscar Isaac, uh, Billy D. Williams, Billy D. Williams. Um, so we're rolling out all of those interviews right now. I know we just released the Daisy Ridley one, which is really fun. Um, they're all honestly pretty great. They were all in great moods, and I'm, I'm very excited for you guys to check them out. If you're a Star Wars fan, if you like those actors, you'll really dig these. So um, check out my social media feeds, yada, 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 Joshua Horowitz on Twitter and Instagram. I'm posting them all there, or you can go to MTV News's uh, social feeds, and you'll find them there as well. So that's what's going on in my universe. A lot more coming up, but uh, we'll talk about that at a later date. In the meantime, uh, remember to review, rate, and subscribe to Happy, Sad, Confused. Spread the good word. And in the meantime, enjoy this chat with Terry Gilliam. You've had a second to at least hopefully acclimate slightly, or no? No, it's better not to acclimate. No, don't even try. I have to get back to London in a couple of days. So Why just, bother? I, I, I'm just wake up, I wake up at ridiculous times at night here, and it makes me crazy. Well, we're taping this at 3 a.m. I don't know if Good, you know excellent. that. Okay, perfect. The fluorescent light confuses and people, it but does. it's... <laughs> My circadian rhythms are fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. That's now. Can I say fuck on of this? Of course time? you can. That's how I like my guests to feel totally uh, fucked up. Because I had to do a thing on the one I just did. I, and in fact, I could have said what I wanted to say, but I because uh, I, mean, I was talking about Brazil and how the, uh, Sid Scheinberg, who is universal, sure. he commandeered all the the intelligent words. I was only left with the vocabulary of fuck shit conquest, <laughs> <laughs> and I couldn't say it. So hurtful. Well, now you can get it all out of your system here. Thank you very much. This is for adults and children alike. Um, congratulations, sir, uh, on um, what must be a surreal moment for you. It's surreal for me, just as a film fan and a fan of yours, that we have gotten to this point where um, this film actually exists, and it's great, and it doesn't feel like you know, you're not... The best thing I can say to you is, watching it, I do not feel like I see the, the seams. This feels like Good. a complete great work. It doesn't, um, I, what I was, and I heard from other people, it doesn't feel like an old man's film direction. And, and as we know, that can happen. That can, can happen. So um, what's the, what is the general feeling on this press tour? Is it, is it relief, excitement, what? I mean... 
No, it's what just what I have to do. It's the job. <laughs> it comes with the job of being a director. Yeah. You have to go and, and blow the trumpet, beat the drum, and try to bring a few people in. Strangely enough, uh, my daughter and I were down near Times Square just before an, a, pre a previous interview, mm -hmm. and a guy said, are you Terry Gilliam? I said, yes. And we started talking. He said, are you going to come and see Quixote? He didn't know who was playing. Well, that's you realize, why you're here. And that's my job. <laughs> <laughs> this is, uh, ironically, by my count, lucky number 13 for you in terms of feature films. Uh, yes, I think it is. There's irony there. <laughs> uh, um, and, and for those that don't know the past, that, not, that again, it's not a prerequisite, but... Look, there's a great documentary made out of the one of the ill-fated efforts um, back in around 2000 mm -hmm. on this one. We've gone through a couple leading men, some sadly not even with us anymore. Mm -hmm. um, just, I guess, talk to me like how much this resembles the film that you were working on 15, 20 years ago. What's it's, it's changed a lot. I mean, when we were doing it with our brief five days with Johnny Depp and John Rochefort, uh, it was. Closer to Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court. I mean, right. modern guy gets bumped on the head and ends up in the 17th century trapped with Quixote. And we've changed it along the years. Everything. Some of the changes were originally for pragmatic reasons because their budget was shrinking as each year passed. <laughs> and... Uh, and so let's not make it in the 17th century. Keep it contemporary. Right. Then we don't have to worry about aerials on television and planes flying over, all that stuff. So you start from that. And then that led us to the next stage of showing the character that Adam Driver plays at um, Toby, which Johnny Depp was playing. We then showed what he was like 10 years earlier when he was young, ambitious, um, pure in a mm -hmm. sense, not corrupted by success. <laughs> and so it kept shifting. And... And that's what kept it alive in a strange way. Because if we just hung on to the original script, it would have been dead in the water. I yeah, just, it needs to feel contemporary of life, of the moment yeah. in your life. And I have to fool myself that we're doing something new and right. better. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want the dusty old script. we got to keep it fresh. It is interesting because it does feel in some ways like a, a self-reflexive, not about the this particular filmmaking process, but about your own life and career and that... It's about a film in one. It's about a lot of things, but it's about a filmmaker who almost feels like they have to make amends for the way they've treated others in the past. Yeah. Is that something that you've ever felt like you've had to? Have you had to apologize for behavior or or whatever of the young Terry Gilliam? No, it's not that. It's it really it came from the making of Monty Python and the Holy Grail because we were working up in Scotland in a little village, and here we were all successful guys coming up from London, you know, and and you know. Relationships changed, let's put it that way. Some followed us back to London afterwards thinking they would be able to get into showbiz. Yeah. Other marriages fell apart, all sorts of pregnancies occurred, all of these things. And at a certain point, it's, you know, we're like Vikings, and one should occasionally apologize for the chaos we've created in other people's lives. <laughs> totally, totally. So I'm curious also, you mentioned the casting changes. So what... Um, well, first of all, let's talk about your Coyote. Um, you end up with a frequent collaborator, Mr. the great Jonathan Price, who I know, I mean, ironically, you didn't necessarily want for this at first. You ha kind of had to be convinced. What, what was the reluctance? This is one of our greatest actors. You love him, obviously. I know. It was, it was but it must have been, could be 15 years Jonathan has been banging on my door saying, when can I play Coyote? And he was too young. There was... I was still probably clinging to the image of Jean Rochefort, uh, all of those things. And it just basically it came 
to the time we were able to do the film and Jonathan was available and all the other people had dropped out or died <laughs> or whatever. And and he explodes on the screen. He's just fantastic. Yeah. It's almost impossible to imagine another version of a coyote. He, he's brilliant. What did you know of Adam Driver prior to this? Like, What was your reference point for Adam? Very little. I'd never seen girls. I did see his first Kylo Ren. Mm -hmm. And my daughter, Amy, who's one of the producers, said, you ought to meet this guy. And I did it at a London pub. He just wasn't anything like I had imagined the character that we had written was going to be. He doesn't look right. He behaved completely different. And I thought, this is exciting. Yeah. It's a new, it could, it's going to be a nice surprise. There's something about him that is so unactory. Yeah. That is, he's a genuine human being. And, and the fact that he joined the Marines when 9-11 occurred, I thought, that's Heroic. It's also very quixotic. Yeah. It's a bizarre thing to do. I mean, most kids would not do that, but he did. Yeah, I, can't, I, I have to admit, I kind of came to him reluctantly myself. Like, you know, I wasn't watching Girls, and it was sort of like he was like this kind of enigmatic beefcake guy, kind of guy on Girls. And the more I saw, I saw him in Inside Blue and Davis, and he's just, he's fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> and in this one, I, what I really appreciate is um, I don't think I've ever seen him smile more in a film. <laughs> you, you found some new new dimensions to Adam that haven't been explored yet, which is always exciting. But that's, I think, this part in Coyote is broader and the range is greater than anything he's ever done in a single film or TV series. He goes from being a complete asshole at the beginning. You don't like him. Right. But as it develops and he's dealing with his sense of guilt, getting caught up with Jonathan as Quixote, he, 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 it goes from that to desperate to romantic and it becomes beautiful by the end. And it's like, same guy, yeah. but he looks like different people in the course of the film yeah. because it's all coming from within. It's not makeup and all that. It's from within. <laughs> Did it take you a while to learn sort of how to direct actors? I mean, you mentioned the first directing efforts, Holy Grail. These are your collaborators. Like, did they take direction well from you at that Python point? does not take direction well. I was well. going to say, I wouldn't imagine. The, especially from an American animator. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why I started making films on my own and why I've never done another Python film as director. <laughs> uh, but once I started on my own working with professional actors, they took direction. I asked them to lie down there in the dirt. We'll cover you with even more dirt. And they did it. This is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I knew it couldn't work this way. John Cleese never did this. <laughs> and that was it. And I, I discovered, I didn't really, because I had no training in either actors or dealing with actors as such. Yeah. Uh, and I just realized what I am is a really good audience. And I laugh when they're funny. I cry when they're um, tragic. And, and I'm very present on the set. And so actors need something to bounce off of, something to say it's going well. And I just seem to be deemed, at least now, to be trustworthy. That when they go too far and fall on their face, I will, the public will never see that. Well, it's funny because you mentioned that, because in, in the days leading up to this, like I, I'm very well versed in your work, sir. I've seen it all many times. But I, I did decide to go back. Yeah. And actually, I watched the two docs that are out there, The Hamster Effect, which I've seen before, which is fascinating. It's about the making of 12 Monkeys and, of course, Lost in La Mancha. Um, and among many things that struck me in watching them again is kind of what you were just saying, is like you kind of run the gamut of emotion, like in my sense. <laughs> like you, there are high highs. You are giddy. You are the biggest, the best audience on a set. And, and we are also seeing you like despondent. Yeah. Yeah, is, that, is that filmmaking for you? Is it sort of a yeah. um, roller coaster? Did those two 
docs kind of capture what you're like on set? It is. I mean, I don't even, I'm not sure if I really like making films. I, I, I do it because I'm reasonably good at it. And the, the ups just slightly are more <laughs> frequent than the downs, but not many. Uh, and, and I just like working with other people. I like being part of a group and also being the guy who is the boss of the group. It makes it so much easier. Yeah. So, and, but it's the, as ideas come out, whether it's from the designer, from the cameraman, from the sound guy, or the actors, that's what's exciting. And, and I'm just very transparent about how I feel so they know he likes what I'm doing. Yeah. I, and that's important that they not, that everybody actually not only knows that I like what they're doing, but that, that I could do what they do, but they're better than I am. Mm-hmm. And that's important, but I know what's involved when I ask somebody to do something. I know how difficult it will be or uncomfortable or unpleasant. And so I think that's maybe my skill. I don't know. You, you, you alluded to something that I, I do find fascinating, which is that like, you've become now like, you know, you've always been this like, um, I, I, mad genius kind of character. And, 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 and now you're kind of also in an elder statesman role <laughs> as a filmmaker, which is kind of strange. And, and it must be surreal for you, too. Yeah. Um, I mean, you, you, you mentioned kind of that concern, and I, I have it too when I watch a filmmaker that I've admired for many years, like, will they still have it? Will they yeah. still have that vitality? <laughs> and for every Scorsese who's still doing A Wolf of Wall Street that still feels like a 30-year-old man's yeah, film, exactly. there are five that feel like, yeah. oh, they've run out. They're, yeah, they yeah, they, they yeah. should have tapped out at 45 or whatever. How are, are, is that something you're keenly aware of, and, and, and how do you combat something like that? Well, I mean, it's my great fear that, you know, suddenly the magic is gone. I can't do it anymore. Or my choices my uh, are the wrong choices. It's just, yeah, you think about it all the time. Because basically, I'm just amazed I've been getting away with it for so long. Yeah. And I know I'm a fraud. And it's <laughs> when people, everybody realizes I am a fraud. That's the moment I worry about <laughs> Up till then, I keep fooling people. <laughs> when I spoke to you for Zero Theorem a few yeah. years back, uh, you were, I, I can't remember the exact words you used, but suffice it to say you were not thrilled about the state of filmmaking in 2014. I'm guessing you're not that much different today. Tell me, where, where do you stand in terms of... I think the problem, I'm, I'm, because I'm just very selfish is what it's about, and the kind of films I make are too expensive for... I mean, Quixote end up was $20 million. That's right. the wrong number. The number is to be less than 10 or more than 100. Exactly. Yeah. That's the deal. Yeah. And that's what I think is sad, that that middle range of films, which require uh, a, a more cinematic, a bigger view of the world than just sit, people sitting around a table talking, is, is hard to make now. And I don't want to make the big uh, Avengers and X-Men those, there are other people that are much better at doing that kind of work than I am. I'm much more hands-on guy, but my ideas are bigger than less than ten million dollars, and that's what frustrates me. Well, and it's very because the main conversation for cinephiles in the last year or two is like mm-hmm. you look at the Paul Greengrasses, the Alfonso Corones, where have they all gone? They've gone to Netflix because they have the money and they have the distribution, and maybe they'll. They'll, they'll give them a week or two in a theater, and that's, that's the bargain. That's what it is, and I'm, I'm tempted the same as everybody else, yeah. because ultimately what we do is about storytelling. I like to have a big screen, but it, for years I know that the majority of the people who have seen my work, it's on their computer or their television at home. Luckily, TV screens are getting bigger. This is true. <laughs> and, and it's only when I see somebody watching something of mine on an iPhone is the moment I want to get out my axe and... 
and chop bits <laughs> off because uh, that's ridiculous. I think, but what I, I mean, I just was thinking about Quixote because last year in October, the London Film Festival, we sat there with a big audience and it plays so wonderfully because people are not agreeing on what is funny. They're not agreeing on what is the bit they're enjoying. So it's a wave of emotions that are moving around the room constantly, but they're always reacting to something or other. Somebody is, and that's great, where you sit alone watching something, which unfortunately is what I watch most things when it comes to the Academy Awards, the screeners, and I'm sitting at home watching, and I'm very judgmental, but it's not the same experience. Yeah. Uh, it's the wrong relationship. I mean, the, in a cinema, the audience are little people. There's that great screen with a great story being told. With your iPhone, you are the giant, and the story is just That's a very funny thing. way of putting it. That's totally true. Um, you mentioned the Oscars. Are you an Academy voter? You, uh... Yes. <laughs> this year was so tiresome, so boring. I really began to wonder what is going on. Meaning the whole, like the films that were out there, or the pro, or the award show stuff itself? All the or? films were pretty mediocre to, at best. I thought it had got, especially the smaller films, where they need funding from a lot of different sources, they had all... Were, all seem to be having to tick the number of boxes. Okay, we need a lesbian, we need somebody, we uh, need a black person here, probably Hispanic. You know, it's like, that's how you do it. And that's not how to tell stories. You tell stories that are true for what it is. Not, I, I, I'm great, I'm glad that diversity exists. And I'm more the merrier, frankly. Yeah. But you, you've got to be true to the story. That's yes. all it's about. Um, did anything strike your fancy? What was, did you have a favorite? Capernaum. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which yeah. was a... Uh, Foreign, foreign film, language. Yeah, yeah. which unfortunately BAFTA and in London, which is the British Academy, Alfonso got Roma as best picture and best foreign language film, and that cut Capernaum out of the running down there, which is wrong. Right. Capernaum, I thought, was a wonderful film. I thought there were few others that got me excited at all. Again, in looking back at your work and your accomplishments, it surprised me, frankly, you've only been nominated once, as you well know. <laughs> and I lost. <laughs> it was uh, co-writing on, on yeah. Brazil. Um, I mean, Fisher King was well, I think, got five or six nominations. Yeah. Mercedes uh, got the Oscar for Best right. Supporting, which was great. Of course. <laughs> did, did, did that, I mean, you know, no. you're a human being like the rest of us. No? No. Doesn't because I don't, I don't respect the Oscars is why. <laughs> I mean, if the best film won all the time or then, the most yeah. artistic or whatever, it's not happening. I don't even know what the judgment is. Right. How can Green Book win? <laughs> Come on. I, I just thought, you can't do this. There's so many other films. What? And I still don't understand the logic of the voting on it. I don't either, frankly. I thought, I'm glad that, uh, I can't do his name, the um, the black actor, Ali's uh, last name. Yeah, Mahershala. I'm glad yeah, yeah. he won. Yeah. I thought it was a great performance. Absolutely. He was the thing in the film that sparkled and was wonderful. Yeah. Uh, last superhero film you've seen? Actually, the, the Avengers Infinity War. With, oh, yeah. I quite liked it. This is breaking news. I know, because I've been watching all these other films that were up for the Oscars, and one night I was so tired of the films I'd been watching. and The ostensibly great said, films. You're like, you know what, I'm going to watch the popcorn movie everyone's talking and about. And I enjoyed it. I thought, and it actually was saying something. You know? mm -hmm. I mean, we should be concentrating more on our future, where we're going. So this was one approach to deal with what is going to happen if we don't get our act together soon, folks? <laughs> Fair enough. Um, did, I'm curious. This is way back when you you dabbled. You you thought about doing or pursued doing Watchmen way back when. Yeah. Um, 
did you did, was it did you ever crack it as a feature? I know there was talk of at that time of expanding into a TV series. Was there a feature script you liked? Yeah, no, we wrote one, and it wasn't good enough. <laughs> it was again trying to cram too much into two hours. Right, and and that's I I think at the time I said it would be better as a TV series because. The, down, the book is very dense, and to tell all those stories, you need more time than two hours on the screen. I thought Zack Snyder's beginning was great, and then it just fell apart. But it started, I thought, wow, this is going to be wonderful. The guy's got it. Yeah. And then it went elsewhere. <laughs> did, you, did you ever get into any casting dream, dream scenarios for your no. Watchmen? We were just... We were just dealing with a script at that point and seeing if we get go go forward. Yeah, but you like like because yeah, I mean you know as much as you are critical of comic book movies often, you you grew up you read comics you like comics. It's not it's not the source material it's the interpretations you acquire. It's basically with. just no. It's a bitter old man who <laughs> would have loved to make those kinds of movies when he was younger and nobody gave him the opportunity. <laughs> So I am bitter and Got old. It. Now I get the subtext. <laughs> Let's run through, if you'll indulge me, a few movies that you are, you know, on the IMDb it says that you turned down, if you'll indulge me. Who yeah. Framed Roger Rabbit? Yes, that was, now, where was I in that one? Let's see, that was 87, so yeah, that would have been post-Brazil probably, or maybe around Brazil. I, now this is where memory is now fading. Yeah, yeah. I just don't remember. I think there was a point where I was approached, at least somebody was saying somebody was interested in me, and <laughs> I wasn't interested because I was so into my own things at that point. Fair yeah. enough. A Forrest Gump? That definitely came down, and I think I said no because... Why did I say no? There was a reason, which passes me by <laughs> at the okay. moment. So I said no. Let's do the Truman Show. I know that one. I turned that oh, one Oh, really? Yeah. I sent the script, and I was so angry that Philip K. Dick was not being in any way acknowledged as where it all came from. Right. And I said, well, I'm not going to touch that if that's the approach. <laughs> Um, I know you want, you were developing some stuff with Mel Gibson at one point, and, yeah. and Braveheart was mentioned. Well, I, at that point, they were trying to um, do um, Tale of Two Cities. That's what I was, I was yeah, And I, I was, you know, and Mel, Mel was supposed to be playing Sidney Carton, and they came to me about directing, and I thought he'd be great. I, and I really, I mean, I love uh, Dickens and that particular tale I love. And, and so we had meetings, and I was spending a bit of time with Mel talking about it, and, and he was beginning to get hesitant, and, and he said, because he's got this other thing he really would like to do, and he asked me if I would direct it. This is a medieval film, and I said, well, I've done medieval things. It's <laughs> the same movie as I'm boring. <laughs> it's boring. And, of course, it was Braveheart. Amazing. Um, yeah, others are mentioned, like Alien Resurrection. We've talked before about Potter. Um, did any of those, like, you desperately want to do, or things that we didn't, like, in that, in that sphere that you really went after, that for whatever reason... No, these they all came back. to me. That's what it sounds I like. Didn't, I, I wasn't begging to do them. Yeah. Forrest Gump, I remember now, because I lived through that period, and I knew what it was really like. I didn't buy it. <laughs> <Okay. laughs> That's good. Um, oh, I, this, this I had yeah. never heard. Well, um, Strange Glove, that Kubrick apparently wanted you to tackle a sequel to Dr. Strange Glove. This, this is really weird. I have never heard it from first person, but I was told on good authority that yes, he, you know, AI, he had passed over to Spielberg. Yes. And apparently he was serious about talking to me about doing Strange Love. Amazing. Did, and, you, did you know Kubrick at all? Did you, had you ever met him? 
we talked on the phone. We, we had a few conversations. At one point, my wife and I were on holiday in Greece. And we came back, and there was a letter unopened that had been sitting there for a couple of weeks from Stanley asking me to do the credits for Clockwork Orange, but he needed them done by the next week. <laughs> we, came back from, we came back. That was not on. After, after Jabberwocky, he called me because he wanted, he was working on, um, oh, come on. Yeah, what's the one? Snow, Jack Nicholson, Shining. 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 Yeah. Thank you very much. And he wanted me to see if I could find an art director that would work with him in the way he wanted to work. I won't go into the details of what he was wanting. After, I, and I said, I'll, I'll try. And I got in touch with a lot of people I knew. Nobody wanted to go and work with Stanley. Some had worked with him before and said, never again. And, and finally, having failed, I wrote him a note and said, I really am sorry, but I really have failed at this, this, this. But it would be great to sit down and have lunch sometime. Never heard back. Oh. <laughs> well, it, it, it's true. Did you see that doc uh, film worker about his like longtime assistant slash kind of like... No, I've heard about it. It's, I haven't it, seen it. it. it, it but it's, yeah. it, I think you would appreciate it just because yeah. it's like, yes, to be in Stanley's orbit, you were yeah. at the... You lived that's for it. Stanley. And yeah. that's, a, that's a choice. Well, he was one of my heroes. There's no question about it. Yeah. And to even just talk to him a bit on the phone was wonderful. <laughs> Can you, which of your films can you watch with like satisfaction and which, which, which do you see the seams and see the, the mistakes? Like what, what do you take? The I most? don't, I don't watch them. Yeah, I get it. That's I get, the key. Yeah. I'll tell you something though. Two weeks ago I was in, a, um, regrading, uh, um, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas because it's going to come out in, in a new, ver not a new version, but just, you know, remastered, remastered yeah, and all yeah. that. And watching it without the sound, and I had to watch the whole thing going through. The, and I thought, this is brilliant. This is, I can't believe how good I was <laughs> and how good John and Benicio were. I mean, it, it just marveled. I've got the camera there and I'm doing that. But brilliant. And I thought, that was a rare occurrence. I normally don't like watching them because I see all the flaws. I really do see. If only I had done that better. On the other hand, I see things that I can't believe I actually pulled off. Yeah. That I could never do that now. It's, it's that thing of who you are at a specific sure. moment at time. And you change. And it's, whoever you were at the specific moment that you were able to create Brazil, which still stands, is just like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, could it could open today and still be yeah. considered visionary. And, and, well, and they would think it would be uh, about the past. Exactly. Or about the, you know, because yeah. I mean, actually when I was here on promoting Tideland, I was saying I was threatening to sue George W. Bush and Dick Cheney for the illegal and unauthorized remake of Brazil. <laughs> Here's another factoid, according to the internet. Yeah. You were considering Tom Cruise for the lead role in Brazil? There was a point. I was out in Hollywood looking for actors, and I, I was mainly concentrating on, on actresses, and, and they were all coming forward because I was, I think, A-list at that point, brief, for a brief moment. And, they, uh, and I was getting them all, and then my casting director said, you got to come to this edit room and see this. And it was a clip from... Um, Tom's first movie, the one in... Oh, uh, Risky Business? or Risky uh, Business. Yeah. The moment his little dance in sure. his underwear. <laughs> and, and I said, this guy's clearly a star. Yeah. And, but when I said, I've got to go back to London, but before I go, I need to put you on, on, on video. That's what I was doing to everybody. And, and he said he couldn't do it. His people wouldn't let him, whatever that meant. And it was, it was very sad because he was just starting out and he felt... I, I felt clearly he's under control already. Right. And he's a lovely guy, but 
It never happened. So it's a shame because the riskier stuff he's done, it's like I, I, I appreciate the Mission Impossible movies, but I, I also like when he does a Magnolia. Yeah. That's when it gets really no, it's interesting. Good. Yeah. yeah. And there's another side, you know, Tropic Thunder. Yes. I didn't know the, who that was until I saw the credits. Good for him. Totally, totally. <laughs> Is there, um, well, I was, again, I was watching Hamster Effect about 12 Monkeys. Was that your one and only test screening experience? To watch Terry Gilliam have to go through test screenings seems like... It was, I thought it was very good. I mean, that was that documentary was nice. Because there it was. Because nobody ever sees that no. side of filmmaking. Yeah. And that's the stuff that you've done your work, and then you, well... When I'm cutting a film, I'm showing it to a lot of people as I'm going along, so I, I know pretty much how it plays. Sure. But then you go to those things, and those, those screenings, uh, the executives are there, the audience knows they are given power. And the stuff that comes out is unbelievable. And that documentary is great, because I'm sitting there talking to the editor, and it was like, wow, it works. They really reacted. Yeah, exactly. And then, and then the paper comes back. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, because you felt the energy, and, yeah. and it was not on paper. No, and it happened before on Chabwaki when I first was doing that, and I remember getting good reactions. Then afterwards, these people just hated the film, apparently. Uh, and you think, what's going on here? And it, it's because uh, a sheet of paper is put in front of them, and I, they then become like critics. They feel, I've got to approach this not just like a, a guy coming to watch a movie. Yeah. I'm going to tell the truth. It's very weird. Um, since in, in recent months there's been intriguing news for someone that grew up I've told you this before but the first movie I ever saw in a theater was Time Bandits mm. um, that Time Bandits is going to be turned into a TV series so I'm told so are you involved at all? <laughs> I'm apparently the executive producer <laughs> That's whatever that means <laughs> whatever that means are you my okay with that? my contract is not signed yet okay in and theory? I just well I just want to be able to try to Make sure it is in the same spirit yeah. as the original. And I want to be able to say no. I'm still waiting to find out how this thing really work, works in, 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 uh, in, in fact. In Will I sure. have real power or what? We don't know. So have they given you their take on like what, it is, like what their approach is or anything? Well, I've, I've read who's directing and writing the first one. Yeah. Yeah. And I read it on the internet. <laughs> and I've said, when they sign my contract, then I'll get involved and we get chatty at that point. But I think he's a good choice. He's a I very talented, he's very good. Very talented, very funny guy. I would imagine you guys would get along. Yeah, because I, I only saw the Thor Ragnarok. Yeah. And I great, this is somebody who's got a good take yeah. on things. <laughs> what we do in the shadows, I would highly recommend as well, as, as well as Wilder people. He's like, yeah, I could, great, great. I'm going into this with high hopes that once, this, once it's signed and sealed, you can figure it out. <laughs> um... I remember you were talking, in, uh, speaking of TV, about Defective Detective, about developing yeah. that into a TV series. Any progress on that front? I don't know. In fact, I'm seeing Richard Legravenez this afternoon. Oh, really? <laughs> he and I wrote it after Fisher King. And yeah. at one point we started thinking, okay, we're never going to get the money to make this. It's too expensive, but it, maybe Netflix would like a six-part series. And we've talked about it. I'm not sure if a six-part series is the right way because this film is flipping back and forth between reality and fantasy. It's actually a middle-aged detective, New York detective, having kind of a nervous breakdown. And I think within a two-hour piece, you can control that, and it, you can't escape from it, which yeah. is more powerful than at the end of the, each episode, you're relieved or you're not relieved, whichever. It's, right. I don't know. The pressure cooker of it is almost part of the... That's it. It's yeah. The pressure cooker is really key, and that's why I like making films and not series. On the other hand... The best stuff that's been done in 
to me, Breaking Bad is still one of the great yeah. stories told in the last many years, and it's beautifully done. Is, is there is there a script in your back pocket that you have as much love for as Quixote that, with a, a little bit of freshening up, that makes it feel <laughs> of the moment uh, will be ready to go? Nope, I'm empty. I'm <laughs> a void. There's nothing going on. Uh, up there for the first time in my life, and I'm actually a bit nervous. I'm trying. I'm reading a lot right now, books, hoping that something will spark. Well, sometimes, as you well know, yeah. I mean, the, the like as much trepidation as you probably had of Fisher King or, yeah. or Twelve Monkeys. Sometimes the collaborations from without have have turned into some of your best work. I would. Here's what I'd love right now: to get a script that's pretty much ready to go. They just need a director and a couple actors. Yeah. And that's what that's what happened with you. Fisher deserve King. something like that. <laughs> you put in your time. <laughs> if Fisher there's karma King, in the universe, I know. If there's any <laughs> karma, I hope it's working against the Trumps and the others of this world. But uh, I'm not sure. Karma's on holiday at the moment <laughs> yeah, for a few on an key extended people. leave. Exactly. <laughs> we're waiting for it. To, but when it comes back, Terry, it's going to be so juicy, so good. Yes, that's what we're counting on. <laughs> we want the fall to go on forever. Just watch the fall. He's falling, and he's still falling, and he's. Falling. Falling and then he's about to hit. Oh, he does hit. Oh, he's still falling. He hits another one. And oh, it's endless. We want that. Exactly. <laughs> um, you, ha- you haven't lived here for quite a while, in, I mean, in the States. Yeah. Is there any part of you? Like, what's, what's the most American part of you at this point? And is that the Minnesota boy still it's within you? Foolish optimism. <laughs> That's the Coyote story is a bit of an American who just couldn't let go. Uh, no, but I'm now uh, 100% British, yeah. uh, and I don't. I'm, I'm. I'm. No, Britain is a complete disaster at the moment with Brexit, but at least I'm glad I'm not responsible for Do- the Donald. <laughs> don't put that on me, man. <laughs> but I love the fact he's helping Quixote by saying windmills cause cancer, and so Quixote <laughs> is out there fighting windmills. He's a man. Fighting cancer. Oh my God! You always find the right marketing in, sir. Um, well, as you know, every film is, is kind of a miracle. This one yeah, in particular yeah. is yeah. a true miracle that we've gotten here. Um, congratulations on it, sir. Thanks, thank uh, you, hopefully, thanks. it won't be another five years. Someone give this guy a great script and get back to work. I'm uh, ready to be a whore. There you go. <laughs> Terry Gilliam will work for food. Uh, thanks, man. Great, thank you. Appreciate it. I like these where we just didn't talk like this. It's a chat. And there's bad <laughs> shit. You just cut it out. It's easy. And so ends another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused. Remember to review, rate, and subscribe to this show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm a big podcast person. I'm Daisy Ridley, and I definitely wasn't pressured to do this by Josh. (laughs) 